Welcome to In Pod We Trust, the number one podcast in the world about the past and the present, war and peace, law and life. I'm your co-host, Sam Desai. And I'm your co-host, Nick Danby. We're kicking off In Pod We Trust with a six-part miniseries called The Great Speeches of History. Each episode will cover some of our favorite speeches from history. Speeches like Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, Churchill's We Shall Fight on the Beaches, and Steve Jobs' Stay Hungry, Stay Foolish. Of course, we'll talk about what these speeches were saying, what they meant, but we'll also be going a level deeper. We'll explain the historical context behind these speeches, and we'll tell you about the incredible personalities of the people who wrote them. At this point, you might be asking yourself, now who are these bumbling buffoons, and how are they remotely qualified to tell me about the great speeches of history, or in later episodes, as we claim, to speak on matters of war and peace, law and life, as my good friend Samarth said. The short answer is that we're two history buffs, who graduated Harvard together in 2020, in fact we're roommates, and have a lot of public speaking, debate, and teaching experience. And more than that, at Harvard, uh, Samarth primarily focused on political philosophy and constitutional law, while I studied American foreign policy, history, military affairs, and statecraft. During our time there, we worked with the top leading Harvard scholars, some of whom will be on our show, and published some of our own thoughts. Which were often less than scholarly, wouldn't you say, Nick? Well, you can speak for yourself, Mark, but uh, <laughs> for some of us, maybe not. But we've also, in those post-graduation years, have actually worked in these fields. Smarth currently works in the constitutional law space in Philadelphia, and I currently serve as a naval intelligence officer based out of Japan. And with that... Roll the intro music. We choose to go to the moon. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. I have a dream today. In pod, we trust. Sam, the first speech in our list for our first podcast is a classic. Perhaps considered the greatest speech of all time. Certainly one of the greatest speeches of American history. And that's Abraham Lincoln's Gettysburg Address, 1863. It's one of the most famous speeches of all time. So why are we kicking off with this one? Well, first of all, the Gettysburg Address is a truly great speech. We'll talk about how it changed the meaning of the Civil War. It's one of just a few texts that I think all Americans turn to to understand what it means to be an American. I would say along with the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution, and maybe one or two other documents. Second, it's just a masterclass in rhetoric. Look, if you want to be a great basketball player, and Nick, I know because I've played basketball with you, you are not a great basketball player. but Never going to happen. If you wanted to be a great basketball player, you would watch Michael Jordan. And if you want to be a great public speaker, you try to figure out how Abraham Lincoln crafted the Gettysburg Address. Now, before we get into this iconic speech, Smarth, I want to help our listeners understand Lincoln as a person, right? Because it's important when you read a text, read literature, read a speech, to know the man or the woman behind the text, right? What are their, where are they coming from? What are their backgrounds, uh, their limitations, their strengths? So what can you tell us about uh, Honest Abe? Let's start with the basics. Nick, I know that you are quite the presidential scholar. I'm going to turn the tables on you. Obviously, he was an American president, but go ahead. Give us, give us the basics. Give us uh, what number president he was. What are his dates? And I may even give you a little more than that, Smart. But uh, number 16, Abraham Lincoln, uh, president, 1861 in March until April 14th, 1865, when he was shot by John Wilkes Booth at Fort Theater. Uh, he was born February 12th, 1809. Believe it or not, Nick, same day as Charles Darwin. 
to uh, to a great man. And he was assassinated, as I said, on April 15th, 1865, uh, six days after the North won the war, the Civil War. Uh, I nailed that, I think. I think I did a pretty good job. It gives you all you need to know. I think you did very well. Now, those are the basics. But to really understand Lincoln, you have to understand his early life and education. And the bottom line is he grew up very poor in Kentucky. He was born in a log cabin. His dad, Thomas, was a farmer. And his mom, Nancy, passed away when he was just nine years old. So he didn't come from means. He wasn't, you know, born with a silver spoon in his mouth. If he was going to make something of himself, he had to beat the odds. So what was his education like? This is the most incredible part of the Lincoln story. He basically never got any formal education. Never went to school? Barely went to school. Less than one year in total, according to his autobiography. And what he learned in school was just the bare essentials. Reading, writing, arithmetic. That's it. Most of his childhood was spent not really in school, but working on his dad's farm. And so how did essentially Lincoln become uh, the Lincoln we think of today, right? The man who quotes Shakespeare, King Lear, Macbeth at the drop of a hat, the man who has written some of the greatest texts of all time, the eloquent statesman, I should say, who delivered this Gettysburg Address. Let me quote from his autobiography. He said, I was never in a college or academy as a student and never inside of a college or academy building till I got a law license. What I have in the way of education, I have picked up. I regret my want of education and do what I can to supply the want. What he was basically saying is that he was an autodidact. He was self-taught. Everything he learned, even the law, he learned by himself on his own time. And how? By reading. He read voraciously. He was, you could say, he was obsessed with reading. And according to the biographers, this comes from his mother. Mama Nancy Lincoln would read to him all the time when he was little. And then when she passed away, remember he was nine years old, sister Sarah Lincoln stepped up and she encouraged him to read. And so I think they instilled in him a lifelong love of reading. I said he was obsessed. This is what one of his cousins said about him. Abe was hungry for books. He read everything he could lay his hands on. He would read before work. You know, he would read after work. He would read while taking breaks from work. He was truly insatiable. And keep in mind that Lincoln coming from a poor family, he doesn't have easy access to books. You know, it's not like he has a, a library or a bookshelf in his house. You know, today we have so much great literature on the internet. You don't even need to buy anything. You can read Homer or Shakespeare online. Lincoln doesn't have that. So he has to go out of his way to search for opportunities to borrow books. And there's one story about how he borrows a biography of George Washington from a local farmer. And he accidentally leaves the book outside during a storm you know, the book gets soaked. And so the next day he goes back to the farmer and he explains what happened. And the farmer is, uh, let's just say the farmer is not very happy. So he makes Lincoln pull corn on his farm for two days to repay him for the ruined book. Okay, so knowledge isn't cheap for Lincoln. He has to earn it. Of these books that he read all the time, Smarth, right? Obviously, there wasn't a, a plethora of books to choose from when he grew up in kind of the American West at that time. What were his favorites? The Bible, Shakespeare, Aesop's Fables, a poet called Lord Byron, Daniel Webster's Liberty and Union speech. He loved that one. You know, the other amazing thing about Lincoln was his memory. So, of course, from reading all these books, he learns the usual things that you learn from books. 
logic, history, vocabulary, but he also develops his memory and concentration. Remember, he doesn't have a bookshelf, so he can't just go back and reread his favorite books and, and look for his favorite passages. So what does he do? He memorizes the passages he likes best so that he would always have them. He could recite Daniel Webster's speech by heart. He has all this great literature in his head. And another skill he develops from this is rhythm and eloquence. Anyone who's ever recited Shakespeare, and Nick, I know you have because I've seen you play Mark Anthony in Julius Caesar. You did an excellent job. The delivery and the rhythm in Shakespeare are as important as the words themselves. So when you practice delivering the lines, you develop this intuition for good rhythm, just like musicians have a have a great sense of timing. Absolutely. And I can think of some stories, and we've talked about this some Arth, where uh, Lincoln would, would you know, quote Lear or Macbeth at verse, sometimes thinking he was uh, Macbeth or Lear, would put himself in the shoes of Hamlet's depression, perhaps, or Macbeth's ambition. Uh, he was a great lover of theater, but also those classic English literature texts. Exactly. His, his secretaries later, John Nicolay and John Hay, when he was president, would say that when, you know, there was a, a free moment, Lincoln would perform monologues from Shakespeare to them, and he thought that, that that was just the most fun thing that they could do. If you could be a fly on that wall, absolutely. And of course, Daniel Webster, for our friends listening, is considered one of the great American senators. He was part of the Great Triumvirate, uh, shared with Henry Clay and John C. Calhoun. Daniel Webster represented the North, Clay in the West, Calhoun in the South. Uh, Webster was the senior senator from Massachusetts, uh, and his desk his desk is still occupied by the senior senator from New Hampshire, where he was from. But he was considered one of the great American senators of his time, a, a big union man, a person who believed uh, that you could unite all sections of the country. And he did so numerous times on the floor of the Senate through compromise and legislation, but also through speeches. And his liberty and union speech, or I should say the second reply to Hain, as it's more informally known, is one of those eponymous texts in American history uh, that represents what it means to be an American and how good we can be. And I think Henry Clay and Webster were two large role models for Lincoln, especially as a young congressman from Illinois uh, in the 1840s. But this gets me to my next question, Smart, about public speaking, which is you've told us about Lincoln's reading, his early education. How does he become a great orator? Just like, Nick, every great orator is made, just like Michael Jordan becomes the greatest basketball player of all time, practice. So we've talked about how his mom and his sister encouraged him to read, he learns public speaking from his dad. Okay, Lincoln grows up in Kentucky on his family farm in Knob Creek. And at night, he and his dad and the local farmers and the frontiersmen who happen to be passing through the area, they gather around a fire and they tell stories. You know, they tell tall tales, funny stories, interesting stories, scary stories. And from what we know, his dad, Thomas, was a top-notch storyteller. So Lincoln watches his dad every night, and he wants that storytelling skill. He wants that ability to captivate people via storytelling. And so he practices. Whenever he's in a social setting and he has the chance, he tells stories and jokes. That's why he loved Aesop's Fables so much, because they made for such great stories. And, you know, Nick, I think this is something that, that we've tried to put into practice of always, you know, looking for opportunities to speak in public and tell stories and, and seeing every conversation as practice. The more reps you get in, you develop that sense of what's interesting to people and what's not, what's going to get a laugh, what's going to draw people in, you know, how do you land the punchline? Lincoln practices this for years and he develops that craft. And by the time he's a politician, he is a master storyteller, just like his dad. Absolutely. His wit perhaps got him to the presidency, at least to the White House. Um, well, I think, Smarth, we've covered most of his early life. Let's move on to the speech. 
Well, Nick, I'm going to turn the tables on you again. You are the presidential scholar, but you're also our resident war expert. Lincoln delivered the Gettysburg Address on November 19th, 1863. It was at the dedication of the Soldiers National Cemetery in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. So, Nick, tell me, what happened at Gettysburg? Well, a very bloody three-day battle from July 1st to the 3rd of 1863 took place. It happened at Gettysburg, but three months earlier, before Lincoln spoke, it's considered one of the, the key turning points in the war, where the advantage, or I should say the decisive advantage, switched from the South and the Confederacy to the North. Uh, the Union won the battle, but even if they did, both sides suffered incredibly heavy losses. Uh, 50,000 men lost their lives over that three-day period. and remains uh, the deadliest battle in U.S. history. And of course, Smart, you and I have... Uh, have both visited Gettysburg uh, together. It was a great opportunity. And you can still feel today, if you go on some of those grounds, especially uh, some of the hills that are kind of become famous, um, you can feel that it's still a hallowed ground, as Lincoln says in this speech. It's an, I encourage anybody to kind of reach out. Uh, but it, of course, it still stands that it's the deadliest battle. More Americans have died on that field than any other. And it still weighs on you when you visit. Now, to honor the fallen, they built a cemetery on the battlegrounds, and Lincoln was the one who was invited to deliver the dedicatory remarks at the consecration of the cemetery. So that's the who, what, where, when, why of the Gettysburg Address. And, you know, we're usually not going to do this in this series, but the Gettysburg Address is so short. It's just 271 words, only a couple minutes, that we're going to read the speech in its entirety. And then we're going to break it down. So here it is, Abraham Lincoln. November 19th, 1863, the Gettysburg Address. Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now we are engaged in a great civil war, testing whether that nation or any nation so conceived and so dedicated can long endure. We are met on a great battlefield of that war. We have come to dedicate a portion of that field as a final resting place for those who here gave their lives that that nation might live. It is altogether fitting and proper that we should do this. But. In a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. The brave men, living and dead who struggled here, have consecrated it, far above our poor power to add or detract. The world will little note, nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. It is for us the living, rather, to be dedicated here to the unfinished work which they who fought here have thus far so nobly advanced. It is rather for us to be here dedicated to the great task remaining before us, that from these honored dead we take increased devotion to that cause for which they gave the last full measure of devotion. That we here highly resolve that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom, and that government of the people 
by the people, for the people, shall not perish from the earth. And Nick, they say that after Lincoln finished, there was just silence, no applause, because of how solemn and sublime the speech was. 271 words. Thank you, Samar. 271 words, three paragraphs. Very short. I think I've written texts that have been longer than that. But so much is packed into so little. And I want to start, Sam, by just walking through each paragraph. Sure. What's going on in the first paragraph? In the first paragraph, Lincoln starts off with the past. Four score and seven years ago. Now, score is 20 years, right? So four score and seven, that's 20 times four, that's 80. Add another seven, 87 years. All right, we're doing a little math. 1863 minus 87, that gets you to 1776. So he's bringing us back to the founding of America. And he's reminding us of the principles of the American founding. Freedom and equality. Conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. I think I know where this is going, Sam, but but uh, amuse me. What, what happens in the second paragraph? Okay, so we said paragraph one, past. Second paragraph, he shifts to the present. Now we are engaged in a great civil war. And he also reminds the audience of why they've gathered at the cemetery in the first place. He says to dedicate a portion of the field as a final resting place for the men who died in the Battle of Gettysburg. And that brings us to the third paragraph. In the third paragraph, Lincoln does something very interesting. He says, we're here to dedicate the field, but actually we're powerless to dedicate the field. Why? Because the men who fought and died here have already consecrated it, he says, far above our poor power to add or detract. Okay, so if we can't dedicate the field, what can we do? And this is when Lincoln shifts from the present to the future. He says, it is for us, the living, to honor the dead by finishing what they started, by continuing to fight for their cause. And what was their cause? This is where the genius of the Gettysburg Address really shines. Their cause wasn't to win a war. Their cause wasn't just to win land. Their cause wasn't a cause of power or empire. Lincoln says their cause was, quote, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people, by the people, for the people shall not perish from the earth. So the cause is democracy. Exactly. The cause is democracy, which Lincoln, remember in the first paragraph, told us is liberty and equality. 1863 is the same year that Lincoln issued the, the Emancipation Proclamation. So what Lincoln is saying is this war is bigger than just North versus South. It's bigger than just federal versus state. This war is about human freedom and human equality. And that's why the speech is so meaningful in part because it literally changed the meaning of the Civil War. So the, the rhetoric is there, the, the writing of the speech is there. But you know the old saying, Sam, which is, it's not what you say, it's how you say it. In, in a lot of cases, body language, tone of voice can say a lot more than the actual words on the page. You could have the most interesting message in the world, but if you say it in a boring way, you know, head down, face in your speech, no vocal intonation, no one's going to listen, no one cares. So you've told us about the content of the speech. That's, that's the content. Let's talk about Lincoln's style. 
What were the rhetorical tricks and devices he used to get across his message, either at Gettysburg or elsewhere? Well, Nick, you're spot on about the importance of style. I like to say, if you want to be remembered, you need to be memorable. And Lincoln used a couple of tricks to make the address memorable. The first trick he used is called antithesis, which is the pairing of opposites. So good examples here, Neil Armstrong. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Okay, there's Charles Dickens. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the spring of hope. It was the winter of despair. There's something just so satisfying about contrast, about balancing those opposites. You know, it's the power of yin and yang. That's what makes antithesis so memorable. And Lincoln loved antithesis. He used it throughout the Gettysburg Address. Okay, think back. He says, the brave men, living and dead, who struggled here, have consecrated it far above our poor power to add or detract. Then he says, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but it can never forget what they did here. So that's just two sentences. Two sentences. He uses antithesis three times, living versus dead, add versus detract, words versus actions. Another uh, trick that Lincoln loves to use is the rule of three. The Romans had a saying, omne trium perfectum. Perfection comes in threes. So Lincoln often speaks in triplets. He says, but in a larger sense, we cannot dedicate, we cannot consecrate, we cannot hallow this ground. And then, of course, you have the famous ending of the people, by the people, for the people. A third trick that he uses is word choice. Lincoln uses a lot of evocative and metaphorical words, especially words about birth and death. He says, our fathers brought forth a new nation, conceived in liberty. And at the end, of course, he says that the nation will have a new birth of freedom. What he's sort of saying, the reason he's using these words of birth and death, is that America is being reborn through this process of the Civil War, through emancipation, and even through the address itself. In a sense, America died. It collapsed. You know, the Constitution failed. State fought against state. Brother fought against brother. Father fought against son. But if the North wins, America will be reborn. It will, in some meaningful sense, be a new country, a post-slavery country. And this really happens not just with the Emancipation Proclamation, but with the three Reconstruction Amendments, the 13th Amendment, which abolishes slavery, the 14th Amendment, which promises birthright citizenship, due process, and equal protection, and the 15th Amendment, which guarantees voting rights to African Americans, including ex-slaves. So this is the new birth of freedom, and this is why many scholars, most prominently Eric Foner, refer to this period as the second founding of America. The other thing you'll notice about his style is that it's so simple. It's so simple. I heard a saying recently, people use uncommon words to say common things when they should really do the reverse. Okay, Lincoln always does the reverse. Common words to say uncommon things. He doesn't really use any fancy or complex words. Uh, if you actually break it down, 75% of the words he uses are just one syllable. And the speech as a whole, as we've been saying, is, is extremely short. I think he was uh, following Leonardo da Vinci's rule. The ultimate sophistication is simplicity. Interesting. And Lincoln followed that. I suppose, and I think you'd like to talk about this, in contrast to another speaker that same day. Yes, there's a huge contrast with another speaker. You want to tell that story, Nick? 
Uh, it's one of my favorites. Uh, Lincoln was delivering the dedicatory remarks for Gettysburg, but the keynote speaker, right? The guy everybody came to see. The reason why you got your sort of ticket that day uh, was to see a, and hear a man named Edward Everett. Very distinguished American, uh, former senator, secretary of state, the president of Harvard University, uh, our alma mater, although we may be less proud of him than others. And he had the reputation of being the greatest orator in the country. And remember, this is a time in American history when there were no movies, there was no radio, there were no records, there was no iPhones and Spotify. You didn't listen to music or go to the theater that often. What you really saw were great men speaking. And it wasn't for 10 minutes or 20 minutes, but for hours, hours on end. And for his keynote address, Edward Everett, his ambition was to deliver the oration to end all orations, much like... He saw the Battle of Gettysburg as kind of the penultimate battle uh, before the end of the war to kind of end all battles, end all strife in America. As you know, Nick, Edward Everett spoke right before Lincoln, and the statistics are worth comparing. Lincoln's address, 271 words, 271. Everett's, 13,607 words. (laughs) (laughs) What was he thinking? Uh, We we heard Lincoln's opening sentence already. Okay, this is Everett's opening. Standing beneath the serene sky, overlooking these broad fields now reposing from the labors of the waning year, the mighty Alleghenies dimly towering before us, the graves of our brethren beneath our feet, it is with hesitation that I raise my poor voice to break the eloquent silence of God and nature. (laughs) Very, very fancy. Something I think some of our peers at college would write on their papers, Marth, but maybe you, not me. But, you know, Everett really didn't say anything. You know, so so here's the scene in in Gettysburg on that day is Everett delivers his 13,000 word oration. He's the greatest order of all time. Accounts say that he got a pretty uproarious uh, applause and response. And then Lincoln comes up and he says his bit in a handful of minutes. And at the time, I think people were startled to have such a short speech from the president. But Everett, being a smart enough man, realized that Lincoln's short, sweet and simple speech, right, those three S's, was more impactful uh, than his oration to end all orations. And so allegedly, he went to Lincoln and said, Mr. President, uh, you said more in two minutes than I said in two hours. It's like the great Mark Twain quote. Uh, Mark Twain ended a super long letter by saying, I would have written you a shorter letter, but I didn't have the time. Simplicity is actually harder than complexity. Brevity is harder than length. But uh, simplicity and brevity beat complexity and length every single time. Absolutely. Now, I'm curious, Samarth, when you talk about someone, Lincoln's past, and I would mentioned Webster, who were Lincoln's influences for this speech? You know, Picasso always says, good artists borrow, great artists steal. Who does Lincoln steal from in writing this? Lincoln steals from quite a few people. And there's another great saying, genius is knowing how to hide your sources. And Lincoln did that very, very well. Start with the first sentence, four score and seven years ago. You might be wondering, why can't he just say 87 years ago? Or why can't he just say back in 1776? Why does it have to be four score and seven? Well, the answer is because that's how the King James Bible would say it. The King James Bible says, Abram was four score and six years old when Hagar bare Ishmael to Abram. And everybody at this time reads the King James Bible. Lincoln knows it forwards and backwards. So everybody would understand that illusion. So when Lincoln says four score and seven, 
he's giving his address that biblical tone, that epic tone, the kind of tone that you want to use when you're talking about epic events. So that's the beginning. Go to the end of the speech of the people, by the people, for the people. Where did he get that from? Actually, he stole that one from Daniel Webster, the senator that you talked about earlier, Nick, in the Liberty and Union speech, which is the speech that Lincoln could recite by heart, one of his favorites. Webster said, government is made for the people, made by the people, and answerable to the people. So Lincoln takes the phrase, he tweaks it a little bit, and now the whole world knows it as Lincoln's. The third influence, and you know, we don't have time to discuss it in full detail, but I just want to mention it was an ancient Athenian statesman named Pericles. Pericles delivered a funeral oration at the end of his first year of the Peloponnesian War, which was a great war between Athens and Sparta. And as I said, we don't want to get into the weeds, but there are a lot of similarities between the funeral oration and the Gettysburg Address, similarities that I think are much more than coincidence. And what about the influence of the Gettysburg Address? Right, What impact and legacy has it had? The Gettysburg Address is central to our understanding of the Civil War as a battle for freedom and equality. I would say it's central to our understanding of what it means to be an American, what it means to live in a democracy. And for that reason, it's a canonical state paper. It's almost on the same level, I would say, as the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence. There is a reason that we have middle school children memorizing the Gettysburg Address. There's a reason that Martin Luther King delivered his I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in 1963, 100 years after the Gettysburg Address. And there's a reason he opened the speech by saying, five score years ago, a great American in whose symbolic shadow we stand signed the Emancipation Proclamation. Right, so Martin Luther King is very self-consciously claiming Lincoln's mantle. He's, he sees himself as carrying on Lincoln's work, and that has a lot to do with the Gettysburg Address of 1863. Very well. Very good. Now, Sam, if our lead- readers and listeners are interested in learning more about Lincoln uh, and the speech the Gettysburg Address, where should they go? The classic book is Lincoln at Gettysburg by Gary Wills. There's another great book, Lincoln's Greatest Speech by Ronald White which is about the second inaugural address, which was Lincoln's other masterful speech. The third book I'll mention is one that just came out last November. It's called The Broken Constitution, Lincoln, Slavery, and the Refounding of America. It's by Noah Feldman, who's a professor at Harvard Law School. I'm a little biased, Nick, because I helped Professor Feldman with the research and the editing for the book. But it is an excellent study, brilliant, I think, of Lincoln's views on the Constitution and the presidency. And who knows, maybe we'll be able to trick Professor Feldman into coming on the podcast one day. Uh, trick, especially the special word with you. But uh, no, and a good shameless plug for you, Sam. And before I offer my recommendations, I will say, uh, Sam being kind of our resident Lincoln fellow here, uh, one of our favorite books about Lincoln and also uh, one written by one of our professors is the book Giants by John Stoffer, who we both took a class with, published in 2008, which compares both Frederick Douglass and Abraham Lincoln specifically their oratory. Uh, We were both uh, a beneficiary of Professor Stauffer's classes uh, about the rhetoric of Abe Lincoln and and Frederick Douglass and even Smarth. Uh, I guess you can make a shameless plug for yourself, and I can also uh, mention it. Uh, I had an article that came out of uh, that class that's now being published in a scholarly journal, the Journal of Abraham Lincoln, uh, Jala. You want to say anything about it, Sam? Well, thank you, Nick, for the opportunity to toot my own horn. 
My uh, my bill will be in the mail, ten bucks for this plug, but uh... yeah, pr- Professor John Stoffer, English professor at Harvard, absolutely brilliant. Both Nick and I took a seminar with him on Abraham Lincoln and Frederick Douglass, and I wrote a, a term paper for Professor Stoffer on how Andrew Jackson's 1832 nullification proclamation influenced Lincoln's 1861 first inaugural address. As I said, Lincoln was very very good at hiding his sources. It turns out that Lincoln borrowed or stole, whatever you want to call it, a lot of very important ideas, very significant ideas from Jackson's proclamation. So I wrote the term paper. Professor Stoffer helped me build it out. He really mentored me and encouraged me to submit it to the Journal of the Abraham Lincoln Association. And I'm excited to say, just published. Uh, so hope it makes a contribution to the field. Maybe I can trick you into talking about it more on a future episode. We'll see. Oh, very, very well. Put a spell on me. Uh, I'd be happy to do that. Additionally, uh, David Herbert Donald's biography of Lincoln is considered a masterclass in not only biographical writing, but also a good study of Lincoln. And of course, more recently in this century, Doris Kearns Goodwin's uh, Team of Rivals. I also want to recommend one more book, Smarth, based on rhetoric, uh, which is the classic known as Lincoln's Sword, uh, a very good book by Doug Wilson about the presidency and the power of words, somewhat of what we were talking about here. Doesn't focus on one speech, but kind of all of Lincoln's uh, oratorical canon. So Nick, what are your key takeaways from this episode? What do you think the listeners should go away with? I think a few things, Smarth. One of my favorite lines in the Gettysburg Address is, the world will little note nor long remember what we say here. That first part is very important to me because I love the irony. Because here we are, 50 years, 150 years later, um, and dissecting Lincoln's speech right? He tries to play it off that in his way of being humble and kind of self-deprecating that no one will remember what I say here. But in fact, this is one of the few speeches in all world history that people can quote fully, that people, everybody knows the Gettysburg Address. And so the big takeaway here for me is great rhetoric can have power. Words do matter. Sometimes the pen is mightier than the sword and it can be inspiring. But at the same time, the pen and the sword may also be weighed equal. Right, Lincoln says the world will little note nor long remember what we say here, but they can we can never forget what they did here. And it's also the fact that sometimes you have to pair these words, these meanings, these speeches with great actions and sacrifice. Sometimes the vehicle of that speech, the content, is just as important what you're saying as well as how you're saying it. And so for me, this is the perfect speech. It is the greatest speech of all time because it hits all those points. It's brief, it's clear, it has a great message, it's memorable, and it's simple and applicable to everybody. So what do you take away from this episode, from our folks listening in, is be brief, uh, be simple, uh, be memorable, have a good point, and at the end of the day, uh, speak truthfully. And and also, don't think it's so easy. We didn't really talk about this as much, Sam, but you know, Lincoln spent many, many drafts on this speech. It looks like it's so easy, 271 words, draft on the back of a note card, but uh, Lincoln belabored over this speech. Uh, great rhetoric, great words, takes time. And that's the paradox of great speaking and great writing. It looks easy because they make it look easy, but it actually hides, as you said, a ton of hard work. I think for me, the other takeaway here is that we can all become great orators like Lincoln. He was self-made, he was self-taught, he you know, rose from nothing to the greatest heights, to complete eminence. Um, he came from nothing and he taught himself everything. So what's your excuse, Nick? What's, what's my excuse? We don't, we don't have an excuse if Lincoln could do it. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Nick, the listeners are dying to know. I am already getting calls. I'm already getting texts and emails. The CEO of Spotify 
has been, uh, he just texted me. He said he was listening to the live recording. He thinks this is the, the number one podcast. It has a lot of potential. What, what are we talking about next time? Well, I'm sure the people are just on the edge of their seats, literally perhaps falling out of their car chairs, mainly because they're trying to change their station, let alone uh, hear about us, give the next episode. But but here it is. Uh, the next episode, we'll be continuing our Great Speeches of History mini-series, if you will. It would be about the greatest, I think, in my opinion, uh, British Prime Minister of all time, the British Bulldog himself, Sir Winston Leonard Spencer Churchill. Uh, served as British Prime Minister during the height of World War II. He's a man I've studied uh, frequently throughout my academic career and even post-academic career. And he gave the Great War speech, one of many, we shall fight on the beaches. We'll be drilling down into that. And maybe, Sam, we can make a shameless plug for my scholarly article coming out soon about Churchill. We'll, we'll see in the next episode. Lots to be discussed. We'll see how much you pay me. <laughs> this has been In Pod We Trust. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe. Make sure to share with your friends, your family, your enemies, your coworkers, acquaintances, your ex-girlfriends and boyfriends. If you have questions or comments, email us podwetrust22 at gmail.com. Thank you again for listening. Take care, and until next time. In pod, we trust.